Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became minister. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chandler. One of the things that we know about Chandler and Mary Linda Hardman is when they're out of town, they've signed in online and they're watching. So, hey, Hardmans, I see you. Okay. On a country road between Sharpsville, Indiana, and Tipton, Indiana, is a pole barn-style church building, metal poles, metal side, uh, covered in, in, in brick and siding, that's been standing since the mid-80s. And in that church building, there is a loft, kind of above the entrance where you walk in, where the youth group met. And on the ceiling of that room, it's a popcorn ceiling, on the ceiling of that room are three lines drawn by three fingers right in the middle where the teacher would speak. And I know this because I was in that room when my youth pastor read this text, and when he read verses 21 to 23, you who were once alienated and hostile in minds doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled by his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He shouted for joy and waved his hand in the air and scraped his knuckles on the ceiling of that room. And I remember that day being a moment where something crystallized for me about the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would, I would go so far as to say, if it wasn't the moment of conversion for me, it was a moment, a crucial moment in that process. 
Because the reason he was so excited is he was saying, do you see what this verse is telling you? There can only be two places for you. You can only have two places in your standing before God. There are only two options. One, you're alienated from him and you're hostile in your mind. You're at war with him. Or, because of the death of Christ, you are holy and blameless in his sight without reproach, free from stain, wrinkle, and blemish, as the NIV said. There is no third option. You're either at war with God in your heart or you are holy in his sight. And as a kid, as a 15-year-old, a nickel dropped. It, 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 it was such a, a powerful moment of definition for me. Because what it takes off the table is, well, God is a God of second chances. And he gives you the opportunity to try again if you have messed up. Listen, any of us in this room who hear that as a gospel would say, that's not good news because I blew past that second chance a long time ago. How many second chances can a person have before what's really just kind of clearly established is that system won't work? No, no. You're either at war with God in your heart or you are holy in his sight. And when your faith is in Jesus, guess what you are? Holy in his sight. I could end the sermon now. Because that's the beauty and the wonder of this passage of scripture. And every time I would see those finger marks in that ceiling, all I could think of, I'm either at war with God in my heart or I am holy and blameless in his sight. Those are the only two options. Those are the only two options. I've spent a fair amount of my own Christian life trying to bring something to the table. Maybe you have too. Maybe you've spent part of your Christian life trying to bring things to the table, things that you would say, you know, this is, this is something I can contribute here, Lord. Uh, I'll do some good things. I will try to keep my nose clean in general. And when I'm not keeping my nose clean, I'll try to make it so that no one ever sees that. And then, and then it can feel worth it to you. But when I start at that posture of let me do something so that it's worth it for you to love me. I've just grossly misunderstood the love of God. Because he loves me because his love is perfect. He doesn't love me because I'm trying really hard and he sees that. And he says, okay, you're worthy of some love. He loves me because I'm his. He loves you because you're his. You're made in his image. You're dear to his heart. We have this need, all of us, to be at peace with our maker. And we spend our lives trying to find that peace. Many who don't have a relationship with Jesus, maybe you're here in this room and you'd be like, I'm not a Christian. There's still something inside of you, just as there is in everybody, who wants peace, who wants to know that we're okay, who wants to know that our lives have meaning and purpose, and we have all kinds of ways that we look for it. All kinds of ways that we search 
for meaning and peace, all kinds of ways that we seek to manufacture it. St. Augustine described this in his book, Confessions. He described it this way, and I love how succinct it is. He said, God, you have made us for yourself. All of us. You've made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. God has made us for a relationship with him. And for all of us, Apart from Christ, that relationship is hopelessly fractured. Why? Because we don't just disagree with God outside of Christ. It's not just that we're at odds with him, that we uh, just see things differently. There's a war in our hearts against his lordship. There's a war in our hearts against his right to tell us we're flourishing and meaning And value is found. And so we want to make it. 21 and 23 in in this text here shows us this chasm between God and man. That when we were dead in our sins, we were alienated, we were hostile in our minds. But God makes us holy in his sight. And that's the holiness of Christ. It's the righteousness of Christ that he sees. We're robed in the righteousness of Christ so that when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus and that alone. He doesn't see our record of sin anymore. Why? Because it's been dealt with. It's been dealt with on the cross. Our sin has been paid for. He says it this way. He says he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, us, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, beyond being given a second chance to begin again, beyond simply being just forgiven of past sins, beyond going from God's enemy to somebody that God says, all right, I will put up with you. Christ changes me in ways that I still can't fully fathom, but what his word says is he changes me in such a way that when the Father looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ, period. Full stop. That's what he sees. If we're covered in the blood of Christ, we are not neutral in God's sight. We're not merely tolerated in the sight of God. We are holy in his sight. We are delighted in, we are free, free from accusation and blemish. And why? Because when God looks on his children, he sees the righteousness of his son. I continue to fail. I I fail at a lot of things. I fail at things I don't even know I'm failing at, you know? Every believer does. The point of being a Christian is not to say, I once was a terrible human being, but now I'm better than most other people. That's not the point. The point is that the liberating joy of the gospel is I've been restored to God. And I haven't been restored to him because of things I've done. I've been restored to him because of something Christ has done. 
and he's done for me. He's taken the wage of my sin upon himself, and he has put his record of righteousness on me. Now, that's a pretty, pretty strong thing to say. I'm making a pretty strong assertion about what Jesus Christ of Nazareth has done for you and for me. And the question that we have to ask is, what makes him able to do something like that? What makes him able? And this passage focuses on two things, two things that make him able to do this. The first is this passage tells us he is the Lord of creation. And the second is he's the Lord of redemption. For Christ to reconcile a fallen humanity to God, he has to have authority to do that. He can't just decide to do that. He has to have authority to do that. He has to have authority over the created world, the world in which we live, as well as he has to have the credentials to represent us before God, our maker. There can be no place in either heaven or earth with power to overrule him. He must be the Lord of creation and he must be the Lord of redemption. Look at what the text says. He is the Lord of creation. Verse 15 describes Christ as the firstborn over all creation. Now, Paul is not suggesting here that Jesus was a created being as some cults teach. Instead, what he's saying is Jesus was present at creation. And all things were created, he says in verse 16, by him and through him and for him. We were created by him and through him and also for him, for relationship with him, for the glory of his name. Creation couldn't have been created by Jesus if he was also a created being. No, Paul says he exists eternally. He exists before all things in verse 17. So what does Paul mean when he calls him the firstborn over all creation? Because I recognize that to call somebody the firstborn over all creation, we're getting deep in the weeds of theological language that is not how we generally talk about one another. What does he mean by this? He's saying he has authority. He has authority here. Jesus holds all the rights of all the firstborn sons. God places on him the right to rule for him, by him, through him, which Christ then actively does. He exercises that rule. Verse 17, in him all things hold together. That's Christ exercising his authority over all creation. In him, all things hold together. That's not hyperbole because he's not saying Jesus was just another creation. He's saying, nope, he's present at creation. He is part of creation, part of the creative. He is part of the creation that God made. That came out wrong. When God created, Jesus was part of that process. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit working together. 
In him all things hold together. He's the Lord of creation. He's also, though, the Lord of redemption. Jesus is the Lord of creation. He's also the Lord of redemption. All things were made by him, through him, and for him. If Jesus has authority over all creation, then he has authority to redeem all creation. He doesn't need to check with anybody for that. He isn't some outside defense attorney whose job is to come before God, the creator, to persuade him on how to rule in our case. Instead, we read, in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Or as the note in the ESV study Bible says, what a wonderful resource that is, says this, all that God is also dwells in Jesus. He is one with the Father. He's one with our judge. Notice his position in relationship to the church as well, because he's not just one with the Father, but he's also the head of the body. So the head of the body is one with the Father. The church, he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first to be raised from the dead, bringing the rest of his body to that same resurrected life. So Jesus stands as our perfect mediator, our perfectly credentialed redeemer. Why? Because he is at the same time one with the Father and one with the church. He's the perfect mediator. Paul's writing about something that was established before creation. And he's writing about it in a way that will help us see the glory of all that God has done for us in Christ before any of us ever drew a breath. Even before the world was made to secure our salvation, the Lord of creation became the Lord of our redemption by coming to live the life of perfect righteousness that we've all failed to live and dying the sinner's death that we all deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. And then rising from the grave on the merits of his own spotless righteousness, death could not hold him, and then he robes us in that. By that death, he presents us to God as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not boring. The God of creation, the Lord of creation, is the Lord of redemption, and he reconciles us to our maker, which is what our hearts long for more than anything else. And we're looking for it constantly if we haven't found it already. And we're looking for it everywhere, but it can only be found in one place. Our church is growing. We're going to celebrate four years. The Lord has been so gracious and kind to us. There are Sundays, I must confess, where I go home and I think, I wish I was better at application. I wish I was better at preaching sermons where I could say, okay, so now like on Tuesday, when you have this meeting with this difficult person at work, here's something you could, like to get into that granular thing. And I, I admire people who have that kind of application, that, that ability to sort of really get in there and get specific. If you've been around me, you know I'm a storyteller. And there are times when I get home and I think, was that sermon helpful? Because I feel like all I really did was just lay out the gospel again. 
The Lord tells us that we come to know the Father through hearing the word. I have ways I can grow as a preacher, but here's the point I want to make. As we go into four years of life together as a church, may we never regard the basic message of the gospel as something to graduate from. May we never regard the gospel as something that was kindergarten, first grade stuff, but let's really kind of get into the meat of deeper things and let's start dividing and dissecting all this other stuff and getting, getting, no, let's be rooted in the gospel and never be bored with it and never graduate from it. But instead, may the Lord give us ears to hear and eyes to see in such a way that as we hear the gospel repeated over and over and over again, which is my commitment to you as a pastor, and if I ever stop doing that, get me out of here. That the beauty and the wonder of the gospel would become so magnificent to us that it will it'll take our breath away. I'm standing here as a person who's barely looked at my notes today because this passage was so formative for me. And I remember not just the, the content of those verses when my youth pastor read them, but I remember that something welled up inside of him that he couldn't contain. And I wanted that. And the Lord has been kind to give me that. But it is a seed that is still growing. And I pray that as a church, our approach to the gospel would not be to become more clever in our turns of phrases but instead that we would become people who are just brought to tears by the beauty of the truth that once you are enemies in your minds, hostile toward God in your sin, but now through Christ's physical death, he presents you holy and blameless in his sight, without accusation, free from all stain, wrinkle, and blemish. Father, thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you for the way that you work through passages like this where Chandler Hardman insists on being the scripture reader even though he's out of town because it's been such a transformative passage for him. Father, I thank you that as I stand here myself as a pastor, it's because in such a large part because of this passage of scripture proclaimed to me by somebody who was captured by the wonder and the beauty and the splendor of it. Where when I would see the the marks in the ceiling of my youth group room, I was reminded, even when I'd go back and visit later, I was reminded of the clarity of that moment where I saw that there are only two places we can be at war with you in our hearts or holy in your sight because of Christ. Thank you that the gospel is true. Thank you that the gospel is free. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.